It's a little bit like why people who didn't have children, like I resemble this remark before, I had children, I can never understand how you could get into a fight at a PTA meeting. Well, now I understand. In fact, I sort of expect if I go to a PTA <laughs> meeting, I'll get into a fight. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Great. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. I have about 100 pounds of pancake mix in my house right now preparing for <laughs> Shrove Tuesday open house. You guys celebrate Shrove Tuesday in your churches? We do. We have like we have a major pancake feast. Okay. Um, tonight, followed by the burning of the palms. You guys yeah, do that yeah. too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. We, we don't for some reason this year. I don't know why we didn't, but um, we should <laughs> make make a mental note. You get fat. <laughs> like the whole idea is to like, right. really get fat tonight, and then fast. Well, I think the whole idea was supposed tomorrow. to be that you use up all the stuff that yeah. would go bad that you're not going to use. But I went to Costco yeah. and got all new stuff. So, you know, I'm not sure I'm <laughs> actually following the rules here. <laughs> well, you guys, obviously, the overriding thing in the news is this conflict in Ukraine. And one of the things that I've been fascinated to watch is the skepticism with which many people are regarding the news about it. Um, this is something that I feel like would never have happened even just a few years ago. But over the last few years, it seems that our trust in some of the fundamental institutions has really broken down. Um, the church being one, the media, the government, I think all through the various reporting on and messaging about COVID and Black Lives Matter and protests and January 6th and now this war people are struggling to trust anyone. And I just wondered, does the church have an answer? <laughs> can, we, can we be trusted? Is there truth to be found? And, and how, can we be, how can we be about communicating it? I, mean, I think it's it, the first, in the first place, it's a great argument for the church not being the church of what's happening now. I mean, the, the, if, 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 if the Sunday sermon is always linked somehow to the weekly news, then you know you're, you i don't see how you survive the last two years you're gonna to have to apologize uh, yeah. next week for this week's sermon yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i mean i don't think of course of course the gospel and the, the scriptures and the christian faith speaks to the things that are happening in the world but there there is a brand of of preaching and teaching and uh, and an ideology of i'm sorry that, that noise is my cat <laughs> who's on my desk this is the, the paper, right, right. notorious <laughs> podcast cat. <laughs> Every single podcast you have, <laughs> right, 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 right. You're commun- trying to communicate something secretly to someone. I think, He's just, she's cat. just sitting here, like tearing these up. Okay, so um, where was I? Uh, the gospel does have something to say. The gospel does now. have things yeah. to say about everything that takes place because God, we believe that God is sovereign over all things, um, and so nothing takes place apart from His ordination or decree. Um, so of course God is involved, but the primary task of the church is to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, baptize those who believe or who are babies of believers and, and extend God's, uh, sovereign, sovereign rule over hearts in that way. And, and I think with the, 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 particularly within 
groups and uh, denominations maybe, or groups within denominations where the politics of the day takes precedent, the investment in creating uh, a world that reflects um, that reflects how they understand the gospel to be takes precedence over actually proclaiming the gospel. And though in those contexts, what tends to happen is ultimately you'll fall the, the the leaders of those groups or the churches in those groups will fall into line with one or another political party or ideology, um, and they'll be co-opted and subverted. Um, and rarely have we seen a case like we I think we've seen in the last two years where in which those churches that do that, whether on the right or left, are shown to be following false things. I mean, the, um, I think the, I think you're right in pointing to the COVID scare. I'm not sure what the right word to use for it is, but, but tomorrow in New York state, uh, suddenly COVID is over. You know, like last week it was horrible. Like everyone, everyone's dying. The winter is going to be no more nursing hard. homes. You're going to be cold, hard. It's going to be a cold, dark winter. Everyone's going to die. You know, wear your mask, you idiot. That was last, that was two weeks ago. Now everyone's going to take your mask off and it's okay for kids to go to school without masks. I mean, just, just the, just the, the cynicism that that kind of thing creates. There's a lot of cynicism. Yeah. Um, uh, does do damage to churches that just, became you know swallowed that line and made a major portion of their preaching during the covid thing love your neighbor by doing this and this and this whatever the government tells you um but at the same time you have churches like you know what, what's the guy's down is robert jeffries um <laughs> on the right yeah on the right that you know whatever really whatever the conservative whatever the conservative politicians and ideologues ideologues say becomes what jesus says and what an argument, I think. What a great argument and a great illustration um, those, those two poles are for the rest of, of Christianity, the rest of Christendom, who can say, okay, let's, let's not do that. Let's, let's let the main thing, which is the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, um, be the main thing for the salvation of sinners, be the main thing. And not get caught up in the day-to-day news. So this Sunday, I mean, maybe you guys think I'm wrong. I don't know. We can talk about this, but well, no, this I Sunday, I mentioned yeah, the yeah. I mentioned the war in Ukraine. Like, gosh, that was really distracting while I was trying to write my sermon, seeing World War Three break three breakout. But I didn't preach on it. I know some I know some guys would have like completely decided, okay, we're changing. I'm changing, I'm, I'm rewriting my sermon. I'm going to find a way to talk about war and the Christian faith. Yeah, I didn't do that. I just stuck with the with the text I was going to preach on in the beginning. Well, there are a lot of other wars, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of other conflicts that were last week, too. I mean, that, that's the problem. So that, you know, it's like what Nick and I talk about when we were working together, um, when people would have ideas about the prayers of the people being contemporary, you know, like wanting to change every week for the, for the crisis at hand. It's like, well, you know, first of all, there are a million crises that um, are going on around the world that you know we don't even know about or at least i don't know about them personally and if we tried to cover all the ones that we did know about personally we would be in church for about 17 hours on a sunday um (laughs) just naming them much less actually contemplating so you know i think there's some wisdom in in what you're saying matt i mean it's interesting i don't know if this is where you going too far afield but with respect to the politicization of the church you know i was struck by this when i went back down to baton rouge um two weeks ago for my parents 50th anniversary and 
I don't know if you know this, but they have a governor who is pro-life, who's a Democrat, which um, is, you know, I think he's the one. He's the one guy who's a Democrat. And it was fascinating to me because my parents, they had their wedding anniversary and there was a lot of people involved. But the, the bipartisan sort of representation at their sort of dear, close Christian friends at this was, was remarkable to me in this age of polarization. And I was reflecting on it with Liza as I was, we were coming back from it. And the only thing I could figure out was that, that this question of abortion, which has thrust, you know, politics into the sort of the, the deeply moral, um, not that politics isn't moral, but the deeply Christian moral question before, you know, before life or death, before your, your ballot, um, when that's taken off the table, well, then there really is sort of a de-escalation of passion when it comes to, you know, various taxation rates or, um, you know, or uh, tariffs here or there, the homestead exemption or things. And, you know, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like why people who didn't have children, like I resemble this remark before I had children, I can never understand how you could get into a fight at a PTA meeting. Well, now I understand. In fact, I sort of expect if I go to a PTA <laughs> meeting, I'll get into a fight. I mean, that's, that's what, and I think there's a similar analogy there is that there's nothing wrong um, or it's unsurprising for Christians where there are passionate feelings behind certain issues. But I think you're exactly right. When, when there's a line, um, when there's no line between sort of um, clearly biblical principles, and again, this is where people would disagree, but I would say, you know, the enduring, timeless biblical principles that the church is called to stand up, defend the poor and the needy and the widows and to visit the prisoners, you know, things like this, speak for the voiceless, stuff like this, um, versus just baptizing either progressive left or the, or, or the sort of strident right, that does bring a level of cynicism and disillusionment to, to people when they, they look at the church sort of so clearly divided along these lines. And I think we've, you know, we're trying to avoid that, although I sure, I'm, I'm sure I resemble uh, caricature to people who disagree with me on some of these issues, or at least I'm, I'm easily caricatured in some, certain ways. And, you know, we all try to argue that we're in the middle, you know, bringing the two sides together. But I think in some of these issues, there's really very little middle ground. And I think that's what we're watching in our current political discourse is that the middle ground is, is, is eroding, if not has eroded. You know, I mean, look at even the, the election, um, you know, it's basically 50-50. I mean, look at the Senate, 50-50. I mean, like we have, a, we have some, some, some lines of division. And the, the fact that churches fall along these lines is unsurprising to me. I think the challenge is going to be for us, and it continues to be, and some rigorous self-examination about what we need to actually repent of, and then uh, prayerful consideration and courage to how to communicate um, what we genuinely believe is in line with the, the, the gospel to whether people are going to receive that as, um, as good news or bad. You know? and so, but I hear you. I mean, I think that the this, the cynicism uh, is not just directed at the church, obviously. I mean, you brought up the mask mandate. I think that it's, it's difficult. Um, it's legitimately difficult for, for um, sort of conscientious, uh, sort of deep thinking people to, to really, in my opinion, trust um, a lot of the quote unquote science, for instance, around these, these questions. And I say that as someone who I would re resent if you impl implied that somehow I was anti-science or anti-medicine or, or anti-any of these things, these life-saving wonders and miracles that we get to experience every day. And yet I'm bombarded, as is everyone else who's trying to find the right um, idea with contradictory, mutually exclusive ideas about all these things. And so you end up sort of backing a horse and saying, well, you know, I'm going to listen to just 
CNN. I'm going to listen to just Fox. I'm going to listen to just, you know, one of these is going to be my truth. And then you, that's a, just one step away from, well, my truth is my truth and yours is yours. And then we get to back to um, the demise and the, and the uh, plight of the modern world, which is, you know, back to Pilate. What is truth, right? Diogenes, you know, we all start eating, uh, sleeping in jars and acting like dogs. Um, well, I wanted to in, ask um, you guys about truth because I was um, interested to see on Twitter after the, I don't know if you guys were following the coast of Kiev story, this fighter pilot who allegedly shot down a hex number of Russian planes in one. As soon as I heard that he said, I have a need for speed. I was like, well, so the, the, the footage of him was, I guess, revealed to be flight simulator footage, but that's in a sense beside the question that I wanted to ask you, because one of the things I was interested to see online was the idea that we should not try to undercut the story with the truth that the the uplift of the story was worth something on its own count and should be supported whether or not it was true and that reminded me of course of the recent announcements by uh, the CDC in the U.S. and various health organizations elsewhere in the world that they were no longer going to release COVID data because of the fears that it might be misinterpreted and then I thought, in light of those two things about the Bible, and I thought about how the biblical writers, the disciples, would have felt some internal pressure to whitewash their own behavior in the Gospels. Yeah, good point. Because wouldn't it make the story better um, and more palatable and easier to believe them as witnesses if they just didn't include that stuff about denying Jesus three times or any of That's the right. other times they didn't understand. And I just wanted you guys to sort of parse out for us, what is the relationship between truth and the good news? And, and why is it important that things actually be true rather than just in service of a story? That's a really good insight about the the fact that the the Bible, you know, unique among religious texts, particularly ones that purport to be sort of historical and have narratives, expose the uh, protagonists, warts and all. I mean, I mean, not Jesus, obviously, but um, but the ones with warts, yeah. <laughs> morally speaking. You know, it reminds me of that that often used blind men of Hindustan story. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. that's often people use, and they they use it to 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 sort of undergird. Why don't you um, review it real some quick. of the point that you're. Yeah, you're making where, you know, they say, well, truth uh, is like an elephant. You know, the blind, there are six blind men of Hindustan. And they always talk like this because they're being pretentious, right? So they always say, truth is, and, at any rate. Um, and, you know, one guy grabs the ear, the blind man, and he says, uh, this elephant is, is um, you know, like a giant velvet uh, blanket. One guy grabs the trunk and he says, oh, this this elephant is like a um, large hose. One grab grabs the tail, one grabs, the, you know, and so on and so forth. It's rough and scratchy. And so, so that's used in service of, well, that's, see, that's what knowing God is like, you know, it's none rather just depending on your perspective, that's the God you have and that's the truth you see. And so therefore we shouldn't be too quick to judge someone else's truth, right? My truth is your truth. Well, the problem with that story, as we've pointed out before, is that, that the obvious well, truth of the story is that there is actually an elephant in the middle of the of the circle of blind men, that their perspectives as real and true to their position as they are, nevertheless, are 
or insufficient to the actual reality we're looking at in sort of the picture of it is that there's an elephant in the middle of them. And so not only that, but our elephant actually speaks to us and describes himself. Our God says what he's like. That's exactly right. I mean, that's what, that's where the analogy breaks down with, and you can easily tell someone how infrequently they have gone to church or how awful their minister is if they're using this in defense of, um, <laughs> of their Christian faith, because it's exactly to your point, Nick, is that the radical aspects of our claim to the world is that not only is there a God, but that he's spoken. And he's not just simply spoken in words written, although that's important, but through his son, the living word, right? I mean, in the beginning was the logos, you know? And so that's why our claims to truth are not uh, we cannot claim them to be ultimately perspectival, meaning that it's just our perspective on things, because we're reflecting on an actual historical and embodied uh, person, you know, who has um, revealed both through word and deed that the the elephant speaks, you know, as it were. And so, I think this is where you know there's there's a it, there's nothing new under the sun, as the writer Ecclesiastes says, because the the deep heart of cynicism goes back um, in sort of philosophical terms, at least in Western canon, back to through to Plato, as far as I can tell, in one of his dialogues with a man named Gorgias. And Gorgias was um, basically a, uh, the proto-cynic. He was a um, sort of the father of modern nihilism is what he's understood. And he said that there is no God, um, nothing can be known, and there is no, if something could be known, then it couldn't be God. And if there was a God, he couldn't be communicated, something along these lines. Basically, that, that you know, at every level of claim to authority or, or truth, we can undercut that simply by our appeal to skepticism and sort of the unknowability of things. Well, I've heard this, uh, and I attribute this to a professor who I'd love to meet someday named Louis Marcos, who gave a lecture on this once that I heard. And he was arguing, not authoritatively, I mean, he wouldn't say that this was definitely the case, but he said it's plausible that John, the Apostle John, in his preface, when he's using Greek philosophical context, concepts like logos, had in mind, or at least had come into contact with this deeply cynical, atheistic, nihilistic um, refrain of Gorgias, because you see the exact refutation of these sort of cynical um, appeals to, to non-knowing when you hear in the beginning was the word, so there was something, the word was with God and was God, and so there is a God, and not only was there something and there is a God, there was a, there was a way to narrate this God to the world because in, they sent the prophet John, who was not God, but he was a herald to the light and preaching about the one to come. And so there was this, this understanding at the very beginning of John's gospel that was going the axe to the root of this cynical sort of sinful predisposition of the human heart that says, what is truth from Pilate? He says, well, this is truth. God is real. God speaks, and he has spoken in his son. And that's the claim of the church that then becomes the foundation for the, the, the erecting of a non-cynical, non-relativizing world. I mean, look at what Pilate, you know, Pilate, you know, when he asked Jesus, what is truth? I am the truth. You know, like and the people who, who know me know the truth. I mean, this is what Jesus responds to. And so, you know, you extrapolate that down well, you know, you begin that as the foundation. If if God is revealed, you know, according to the scriptures, as we say in the creed, then we look to the scriptures for what is in fact true, and we begin to see clear pictures of who God is and who we are. We begin to see created realities of men and women, you know, created realities of the way that the household, the state, and the church are to be stru- uh, structured and ordered, and down on through the ages. And so where we are in our current situation 
is that because that foundational truth from a civilizational perspective has been eroded, if not removed, well, then we're back to where Pilate was. You know, what is truth? You know, your truth is your truth and mine is mine. And, and I think, you know, that you see this playing out in the, you know, quote unquote, transgender movement, because what is obviously the case, like that man, Leah Thomas, um, mm. is, uh, is not a woman, you know, that's obvious to everyone, it's, and too obvious. And yet we are forced to, out of acquiescence to the greater good, which is that if something is true, then there might be a lot of other things that are true, which is frightening for us. So we have to, we have to affirm that as quote unquote being true and obvious so that we're not held accountable to all the other things that might be true and obvious. Like there might be a God, we might be sinners, there might be heaven and hell. And these are very frightening things to go down compared to, I can just say, yes, of course, that's a woman leave me alone and, you know, pass the glaucoma pipe. Um, and we can, um, <laughs> we can, and, you know, and I, and I'm very, but I think this is where I've been talking to someone, you know, I went to a men's retreat, uh, this past weekend where John Yates was speaking in our diocese and men's retreat. And it was wonderful. Um, it's Nick and I, some of, you know, dear listener, have very deep, uh, John Yates in the Falls church is very influential in the formation of our, uh, young lives and, and continued ministry. But so it was great to see him, but you know, he was speaking just very frankly and biblically and sort of traditionally about men and women. And, and it was, he was talking about his book, how a man prays for his family. And it was just funny. I was telling Liza, like he's, he's old enough and wise enough and, and sort of um, disconnected from the, the sort of the, the heat of the contemporary moment enough. So he just speaks and doesn't realize how radical some of these things are saying, even the title alone. You know, well, how he must have man, written that book 40 years ago, right? Yeah, I think it's like 35 years old or 30 years old. Um, I think I, he gave me when I was in college, like the, you know, the like the first edition or something. Uh, so that was a long time ago. But it was just funny because, you know, now it's like, you know, how a spouse prays for right. for their for their harem person. of concubines. <laughs> That's right. How a, how a pregnant person um how to care how a i mean again you can't even say it there are no words but it was but it was just but it so so we went from the lecture into a group of small group of men and you know the the what is it was it tolkien or no was it totally tolstoy who said that all families are um happy in different ways and unhappy in the same is that what it is um meaning that there was a commonality to human suffering you know, I mean, there's, you know, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough love, you don't have enough uh, time, whatever the case may be. Um, so, you know, it looks different for you. At any rate, the commonality of suffering was the same, you know, adult children wrestling with unbelief, brought up people brought up in church now questioning all the things they've taught, difficulties with the modern culture and what to do about it. And I was able to encourage them, I hope, by at the very least saying that, that remember you know, like Jesus in Revelation, your first love, like these, these, these radical or increasingly radical claims to the truth actually are uh, ways that God has shown his love to us by, by giving us direction and guidance and hope in the midst of a very confusing and often hopeless and misdirected world. And so, you know, even fundamental truths that would never have been questioned up until, you know, five seconds ago about, about the, relationship between your biology and your gender and sex, right, um, are radical claims in an unbelieving, cynical world, and yet for the believer become further testimonies to God's uh, provision for us 
in a sinful world for echoes and glimpses back to the embodiment of Hindustan of even aspects of him that we can't currently see, uh, but we can trust, you know, by faith and through the scriptures. And that's where I think back to the whole question um, I'm often broad is that, you know, we have this beautiful gift in the church of 2000 plus years of the church, but so obviously 6,000 plus years of recorded history of God interacting with his people. And so when we have just one perspective of it, like the trunk, for instance, back to the analogy, um, we nevertheless have this, this long treasury of people that have been standing on all different sides of God and his revelation through his word and through his people to give us a fairly full picture of who we're dealing with. Not exhaustively, but as we say in Article 6 and our 39 articles, the Holy Scriptures are sufficient unto salvation. And so we have been given a sufficient picture of who God is, a foundation of truth in his son. And that has in fact proved to be and will continue to be the, the foundation that will give people courage to stand up against um, the cynical forces of unbelief uh, that actually threaten, and particularly with respect to transgender ideology, uh, to destroy you know, um, our, our, our children, or at least or, you know, to disfigure them or maim them. And um, we have been given a loving respectful, and Peter says, gentle, uh, but nevertheless convicted um, appeal to the hope that we have within us, which is not cynical, but, um, but grounded in Christ himself. It does seem that the cynicism is an outgrowth of the decision to put the truth to the side in the pursuit of other things, whether it's yeah. influence or finances or whatever, even certainly you can see this in the mainline church, right? What, as soon as, as soon as cultural cachet or um, uh, welcoming or whatever you want to call it came, became more important than just proclaiming the truth that we had been given um, things started to completely fall apart and have been falling That's apart right. ever since. And so the, the question I have for you, I guess, is and obviously, you know, you're just you, but is it as simple as starting to tell the truth again for those who haven't or continuing to tell the truth for those who have been endeavoring to tell the truth this whole time? Can, can one bring these institutions back from the brink by just sticking your foot in the ground and saying, no, I will tell the truth? Well, I think, I mean, I think there's a certain uh, truth in that. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Because when we talk about the truth, remember what we, we're always brought back to is law and gospel. We're brought back to the two words of God. And so if you begin with the truth, the truth in the Bible um, begins with the diagnosis of sin. You know, this is what, and this is the, um, you know, I used to be, I was conflicted about the, the efficacy or the expediency of having the Ten Commandments, you know, in sort of public places around. Um, and I, you know, again, I don't think there's like some magic totem that they are, but they certainly point towards one of the two words of God, which is the diagnosis on sin um, in the world, which begins the conversation of actual, uh, an actual true conversation about who we are, and then sends us in search of, um, an, you know, absolution of forgiveness. And so I think part of the, the, the history of the past two or three centuries in the West, in the very least, as the authority of scripture was challenged and ultimately um, in many churches, quote unquote churches, um, simply replaced by the authority of something else, um, 
And then you also had the ascendancy of the sort of the authority of, of men, for lack of a better word, humans, you know, people, pregnant people and, and, and non-pregnant people. That's all you could say. And, um, and so you have this situation where I forget there's a famous preacher. I forget his name now, but he says, you know, the, 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 the 20th century saw the um, suspicion in all of the things, suspicion in man and, and oh no, suspicion in the Bible and confidence in man, which was exactly um, reversed in terms of, of the way that it should be. So when you talk about revitalizing, revitalizing the church as an institution, I think that if we, if we began with, with speaking the truth about who we are, not with, without, um, without clouding it with the truth of who we, we, we think we are, but who actually we are according to the scriptures, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are hopelessly um, lost, that we are um, equally uh, men and women alike affected by original sin, well, then that sets the stage for an honest conversation that then allows for a deeper appreciation and more um, glorious proclamation of the saving work of Christ for sinners. And so I think the problem is, you know, I'm always brought back to Romans 2, because Paul talks about the Gentiles who without the law, nevertheless, they still have consciences, and they're, they absolve and convict each other based upon, you know, ostensibly a sort of a, a general law, but certainly not the specific law of God um, at the time. You know, they weren't bringing the, the, the Romans weren't sitting around reading the Ten Commandments saying, you know, or the book of Leviticus saying that we've, we've sinned. Nevertheless, I think the pastoral reality of that aspect, in part, that Paul is showing uh, his readers and hearers in Romans, is that there's no escape from the reality of guilt, fear, and, and uh, anxiety, and shame. There's no escape from it. The question is um, whether it can be legitimately diagnosed and then accurately healed, or if it's just simply a, a panacea of sorts, you know, sort of a um, um, kind of a palliative care. Someone described it recently, it's, you know, the gospel is not palliative care uh, for suffering. You know, it's, it's the death and resurrection of the sinner to new life by faith, which of course doesn't necessarily take you out of the world of suffering, but it puts an entirely different light on like, well, this is as good as it gets, you know, or I guess, um, you know, someday we'll be rid of this versus the sort of triumphal, we sorrowful and, and tear-filled to be sure, but the triumphal posture against suffering that we see in the New Testament, you know, that Paul, Paul, I mean, what is, Count it all joy, my brothers, James says, when you endure sufferings and hardship of any kind, right? I mean, that is something that, that if it is not connected to something actually true, then you are, you, it rings hollow, you know? And I preached about this a couple of Sundays ago when I said, you know, someone asked me why I got into the ministry. Did I say this last week? I can't remember. I've, I've used this analogy a bunch because I have my elevator speech now is that um, I'm tired of seeing people suffer and die without hope. That's my, that's my. That's my elevator speech. And I think part of that suffering and dying without hope is when people are disconnected from the actual truth, meaning the truth of who they are and the truth of who God is in Christ. And then all of their protestations about joy and happiness this side of heaven are simply ring hollow because, you know, the, 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 that even at the grave, we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia proclamation at our funeral sermon. It carries with it an incredibly different weight than I know, you know, Uncle Eddie's up there playing golf with, with, um, you know, his old buddies and, and someday we'll all see him again on 19th green. And that's just not true. Um, and they don't believe it either. They're, they're, right. they're tr trying to speak it into existence, but as we just read the other week that St. Paul says, 
he he makes a truth claim that if Christ was not literally and bodily raised from the dead, we are most to be pitied. This is a true That's thing right. that must actually be true. <laughs> it must literally be true, or else this whole thing is just a farce. Part of the decline, and I, I, mean, I guess I mentioned this before, is well, a big part of the decline is is the attempt by Christians. I didn't say in these these words, but I think this is what's going on. The, to immunitize the eschaton, to say, okay, all the blessings that God promises when Jesus returns, peace, justice, um, uh, equality, all, all the things that, that Christ will bring about by his return, we're going to bring about now by our work and by our efforts. Um, and that that's like that can't happen. It won't happen. And so to make it happen, often Christians latch onto a lie, either a lie from the left or a lie from the right. Um, the gospel speaks to that because the gospel, when it's clearly preached, um, unveils the heart. The gospel, when it's, when it's clearly preached, of course, beginning with the law, the real law, the true law, undoes all of the fortifications that the human person sets around sets around his or her own sin. And the law says, you want to know what's wrong with the world? Well, you are. <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> You're the problem with the world. And and then and then the gospel comes in after that and says, and yet God has come in through his son Jesus to to rescue you um, and to take away your sin, to forgive your sin, and to and to credit you with his Christ righteousness and to and to and to make you a son, a child of God. That I think just breaks through everything. Because then, okay, if you can see that you are the problem with the world, and that's then, right. Um, then, then you're not easily going to latch on to a promise that says, if you follow this ideology or you follow this, this political personage, um, things will be well. You'll know, no, it won't because, because even if we get rid of the bad guys and, and we, uh, we ascend to the top of the political ladder, we're going to be the bad guys. Mm -hmm. So so we need, we need someone who's not bad. And you'll be open (laughs) to the idea that you have to die. Right. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I have to die because I'm a sinner, and um, and yet even so, Jesus Christ took away my sins. That's a great thing, and just a little plug for Ash Wednesday. That's a great thing with Ash. I love the ashes, and I, I'm not sure if you guys impose ashes, ashes, but yeah, um, the dust of the ash is death. It's also a sign of repentance, but the sign of the cross is the sign of the you know, the Jesus that that Jesus destroyed death and sin. You so said you that would. last week, and I'm stealing it yeah. for my sermon tomorrow. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> Take it and be happy. Um, but, but the but the whole the, I think I think that's the, if everybody just think about it. Every single person in the world owned the reality personally, individually. I am I am what's wrong. <laughs> I am what's wrong with the world. How much different would the world be how much different would the church be how much different would uh, our politics be right now we're living in a in a in a uh, situation i guess i'm speaking now in the west and in particular in the united states where it's the politics of accusation it's just i mean I, not that not that politics haven't always been a little bit accusation but the, the democrats think that the republicans are what's wrong with the world and the republicans think the democrats are what's wrong with the world and the people in between think that both of them are what's wrong with the world and then and, so, and really again we are what's wrong with the world and so we, sure. we need jesus no that's good i mean that's exactly what we were saying about the sort of beginning back with the truth of things because 
Um, you can work with someone. I mean, the, the God has shown great pliability with people who legitimately think that they are part of the problem. And that's the first of the two words. I mean, that's what we talk about. That's the first the first cut um, of the of the law and and purposely so. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's you know, he can exhort people, you know, imitate Christ as I am and imitate me as I imitate Christ. I mean, he had no lack of the sense of, of direction for the Christian life. And yet he also can say, uh, this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, you know? So it's not a, it's not a mutually exclusive idea where we say we are aware of our sinfulness and we strive towards, um, you, you know, the, for, for the greater things of, of, of the spirit, you know, we, and so I think that's been the, the false dichotomy, um, which is you know prevalent in every age and one that we have to be aware of in our own selves, but nevertheless is clearly diagnosed and then addressed in scripture, which is that we are, you know, as Luther said, Samuel used to set Picator, like we are people who are are sinful in our flesh and are redeemed in our by faith, and we see a battle within us, you know, and yet we have the battle ultimately is victorious. And in the meantime, we 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 strive for the sake of our neighbor for mortification of the flesh and for growth in the things of God. And so I think that's where, you know, that's the truth that brings everyone up short, um, you know, the most righteous and the most sinful. And I think that's where, you know, that can be an antidote to cynicism is when your, your hypothetical problems become actually really diagnosed and you begin, you know, it's a little bit like the people that are afraid of the doctor that never been sick, you know, it's like, well, um, that's, that's, that it changes when you actually have been accurately diagnosed and you actually are sick. And then all of a sudden you have a whole different relationship to the entire, um, you know, physical and medical profession. I think that's where similarly, you have a lot of people who think they know what's wrong with them. And they think they know that if those people were different, or if I was different, or if I just started or stopped doing this X, Y, or Z, then, then my life would be perfect. Like, well, let's see what God actually says about your problem. And, you know, it could be that you're laboring under unnecessary burdens, could be that you're ignoring some obvious ones, but whatever the case is, when you are put in the hands of, of God himself and his living word, well, then you can trust that the truth of who you are will be brought to bear. And then, um, and then hopefully by the power of the spirit, something of the, of the truth of God and his son will be made real to you. And that's the, that's the hope. As Matt Kennedy said, we are the problem with the world. That's why we need Jesus. It's a good, a good Lenten <laughs> we message. We are the problem with the world. That's right. That's right. Hey, kids. Somebody call John you know. Bon Jovi. That's right. That's well, we right. are going to wrap up on that note this week. If you'd like to keep the conversation going with us, as always, you can be in touch, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,